Hello. Let's take a minute together to look outside the window. Maybe you see a street, a lawn, or a garden. Maybe you live in a bustling city, or maybe you have a quiet place in the country. When I look outside my window, I like to think of all the things that came before. The land where someone decided to build a neighborhood. A raw place filled with flowers, trees, and plants long since removed. But we lose something when we lose sight of what is indigenous, what existed before we did in a place, and that's the theme of our next cookbook. It's time to return to the roots through the sous chef's indigenous kitchen. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I've got a tiny bit of a summer cold, but, you know, mm. I'm I'm thriving and surviving like you do. Like you do. How are you doing? I am also thriving and surviving. Um, doing really good. Our temps are supposed to reach crazy high 90s again, which is ugh, here in Montana. Yeah. But but we're doing good. Lots of projects done at the house. And I opened the door yesterday and I'm like, oh, fall is on its way. I just got back from a week in Austin for personal travel as well as some work travel. And the temperature there is raging at like 108 degrees. So it was actually quite a relief to come home to just having weather in the 80s and the 90s. I got a lot of good eats, some amazing fried chicken, some Thai food. I had quite a culinary journey over the last week. So it's nice to be home and digging back into what it means to be at home. And as I said, I like looking out the window and thinking about all the things that were here before we were here. And Mm. that's some of what we're going to be talking about today. So to put our new cookbook in context, I want to talk a little bit about the role of food in placemaking. This is a theme we've touched on time and time again, certainly with last month's How America Eats as well. This idea that food and place are linked, Mm -hmm. that how you eat says something about where you are. And generally speaking, I think we have some well-developed ideas that flow back and forth about food in place. For example, if I go to Morocco, I'm expecting to eat dishes like lamb tagine and rice pilaf scented with rose water, saffron, and almonds. Or if we're going out for Japanese food, I might expect some sushi and sashimi on the menu, really fresh fish served with seasoned rice, ginger, and wasabi. Or if I mentioned I was recently in Austin, Texas, you could easily guess that I ate some awesome spicy Tex-Mex food and that that was incredibly different from the Mexican food that I am familiar with from Baja, California. But when it comes to conjuring foods of the indigenous people and places of North America, my imagination is really challenged. Now, maybe I can go to my local natural history museum where I'll find remnants and reproductions of baskets and pottery, or even those creepy mannequins they always set up that are like (laughs) half naked and look strange and alien to me. But I'll find no recipes. 
and I can go out to eat in dozens of restaurants representing any of the great mega popular cuisines of the world, but few, if any, feature dishes focused on actual indigenous ingredients or methods and means of preparation. So that brings us to our book this month, The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen by Chef Sean Sherman. And that's Sioux as in S-I-O-U-X and not a sous chef as in an under chef in a kitchen brigade. Although I really appreciate the pun. Like, I'm so appreciative of the fact that he went there with the pun. Thank you, Chef Sean. We appreciate that. Chef Sean Sherman, I love saying that, is a self-taught chef and food activist now broadly known for his efforts to revitalize and promote indigenous cuisine and foodways in North America particularly those focusing on what he calls a decolonized diet of locally sourced seasonal ingredients and nose-to-tail cooking. His area of specialty is particularly the indigenous culinary traditions of the Dakotas and Minnesota. He was born in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota and is an active member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux tribe. Now, much like Chef Edna Lewis, Chef Sean recalls early memories of foraging and hunting with his mother and grandparents on their ranch in Pine Ridge. As he continued to grow and work in kitchens from the age of 13, he grew more acutely aware that while we do embrace cuisines from around the world, that there is no representation or at least very little knowledge about indigenous American cuisine. After 16 years of restaurant industry experience, he went to take a break in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where he spent time with some of the Huichil people. And this is where Chef Sean had a sort of epiphany about food. Quote, After seeing how the Huicholes held onto so much of their pre-European culture through artwork and food, I recognized I wanted to know my own food heritage. What did my ancestors eat before the Europeans arrived on our lands? End quote. And this is what really inspired Chef Sean to start to research and reconnect with the ancestral foods and culinary techniques of his heritage. His advocacy efforts have earned him numerous accolades, including the James Beard Foundation Book Award for Best American Cookbook in 2018, James Beard Leadership Award in 2019, the 2022 James Beard Best New Restaurant for Owamni in Minneapolis, and the 2023 Julia Child Award. This is what the sous chef intends to accomplish with this cookbook. Quote, Sherman dispels outdated notions of Native American fare no fry bread or Indian tacos here, and no European staples such as wheat flour, dairy products, sugar, and domestic pork and beef. The sous chef's healthful plates embrace venison and rabbit, river and lake trout, duck and quail, wild turkeys, blueberries, sage, sumac, timpsula or wild turnip, plums, purslane, and abundant wildflowers. Contemporary and authentic, his dishes feature cedar-braised bison, Griddled wild rice cakes, amaranth crackers with smoked white bean paste, three sisters salad, doubled egg ducks, smoked turkey soup, dried meats, roasted corn sorbet, and hazelnut maple bites. The sous chef's indigenous kitchen is a rich education and delectable introduction to modern indigenous cuisine of the Dakota and Minnesota territories, with a vision and approach to food that travels well beyond these borders. End quote. Now, this book came into my life as a gift from my sister, Kate, who is very well settled in Minneapolis, Minnesota. News about this book was just starting to reach across national media, so I'd heard a little bit about Chef Sean, but had yet to even consider exploring one of his recipes. 
My own knowledge of indigenous foods and culinary traditions are exact examples of the stereotypes that the sous chef was intended to dispel. Either the old chestnuts about Native Americans saving wayward and bewildered English Puritans from starving during their first North American winter, or the sun-hazed mythos of the Southwest where Hopi, Apache, Havasupai, and other communities are ubiquitously tied to fried bread and pemmican. Beyond its recipes, The Sous Chef is the type of cookbook that promises to open doors for open minds. Alongside its exhortations for, quote, a clean way of eating, end quote, lies a well-timed activism call to grow and nurture respect for people and food traditions that are older than the United States of America. And the deep irony of me having this book in my library is that my sister Kate and I descend directly from the type of people who arrived upon the fertile lands of North America and then systematically moved and removed its first people. Yet here we are now hoping to find a glimpse of culinary ways and means and traditions that were all but lost. Now, over the past two and a half seasons, we've talked a great deal about culinary history, particularly in the Middle East, North Africa, East Asia, and how food has moved around the world, especially to Western Europe, Great Britain, and then on to North America. And I'm not faulting us for following these trails. These are real stories about how food affects human lives. But I think it's so interesting that food scholarship doesn't much lend itself to early North American indigenous food. And so I'm glad that we're here now exploring this. I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, it's interesting because this cookbook came into my life as a gift from my sister as well. And <laughs> and I wanted to just go back to thinking about this book being on our shelves as a deep irony. As you said, we have talked a great deal about culinary history in the Middle East and Africa and East Asia. And we were so far removed from those that it was interesting when this book comes into our lives, how differently I think we have both reacted to it because it is mm -hmm. so much closer to home. Now, I'm not going to take responsibility for what happened hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. What I am going to take responsibility for is the fact that this book is on my shelf because I want to know more about that. And I want to understand more about the indigenous foods of North America because there really isn't a whole lot. This book really reminds me a lot of Nicole Taylor's Watermelon and Red Birds in that it's introducing us mm -hmm. to foods that are important to a culture and why they were important to a culture. I had the distinct honor of being trapped in an airport with Chef Sean. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because of some crazy weather patterns that were happening as we were all flying out from a conference. And we all sat for hours in a coffee shop in the airport and talked about what we were doing from a food perspective, what our businesses were related to. And it was really interesting to talk to Sean because at this point, he was just starting to look at mm. cataloging and saving heirloom seeds, which was fascinating. But the other thing that was really fascinating to me that I didn't think much about was how this diet, this European diet that was forced on the indigenous people, what it did to them health-wise. And so that conversation right. about the health, and I love that this book also talks about the healthfulness of these foods to these indigenous people. Yeah, moving away from 
a diet, you know, ingredients mm. that were not meant for that body type. Exactly. You know, and yeah, we're all human and we all eat the same. I actually really love saying that often to people. <laughs> this is a reminder that there's so much commonality in food, but the truth is that there are foods that while one people can eat without repercussion, another will trigger type 2 diabetes or heart disease. And that is, I know, one of the big cases that Chef Sean makes mm -hmm. in this book is that these foods of colonization were really unhealthy and dangerous for Native American people. Yeah. You just look at things like lactose intolerance, which is a genetic trait. It's not necessarily an environmental conditional thing. And then you're introducing a diet that's very heavy in dairy with mm -hmm. cheese and milk and butter. It's delicious. But at the same time, if it's going to destroy your guts, then it's not right for you. It's not good for you. Right. I love the fact that you talk about we all eat the same. There's a couple of things in his book that he says that is just so in step with what we believe is as we eat. He talks about that food weaves people together, that it connects families across generation and it identifies cultures, which is exactly what we say. It connects, defines and inspires. To your point, we do eat the same, but again, we can't all eat the same foods and be healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. There's nothing wrong in knowing what makes you and your body feel good and embracing and working with that, except when perhaps those foods are not available or they've been forgotten or you don't mm -hmm. remember. Right. Because your family now has an ingrained tradition of eating government cheese, literally, mm -hmm. and it's perhaps not definitely not what's right for your body. Right. Of course, Chef Sean and the sous chef are not the final word on indigenous foods. His focus in particular is on the indigenous foods and traditions of the Sioux mm -hmm. and the people inhabiting the Dakotas and Minnesota. And these places and the terrain and the terroir are nothing like lands inhabited by the Seminoles of Florida, nor the Hopi of Arizona, and certainly not like the First Nations of the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. So I think that anyone approaching this cookbook as a cultural artifact and as a way and method of learning about what indigenous food actually is, just should remember that the indigenous North American diaspora is enormous, non-homogenous, and deeply marked by generational trauma, meaning that you're going to find differences in every part, even a few miles away from a different city, mm. you're going to find changes and differences. So this book is not meant to represent the entirety of Native American food, but it is a first step, big first step in, in growing knowledge and going there. Mm -hmm. So to that end, Chef Sean does not represent all those food traditions himself, but he does include a significant section of the book that addresses other Indigenous partners and guides, such as Chef Rich Francis, Chef Carlos Baca, Chef Lois Ellen Frank, Chef Andrea, and others who shed additional light onto foodways of their own culture that, if not forgotten, had become obscured. And we're going to put some links to some additional resources in the show notes. Obviously, there's a ton of resources in the mm. book itself. Don't miss the book for that. Definitely some good stuff. I was appreciative to see some other traditions be represented in this book. Yeah, I really appreciated that too, specifically the Pacific Northwest and Huckleberries, which I loved because you can associate with that place. Yeah, you can look outside your window and you can mm. you can start to imagine what it was like. I have very tall evergreen trees in my neighborhood, but there clearly were more here than mm. 
there are mm-hmm. now. Over time, people have felled them in order to make space, make room. But I can imagine where my area is being the forest that it once was and having the ground littered with pine cones and probably, I don't know, acorns. I don't actually know if that's true. (laughs) But (laughs) I just, I like to imagine what was here before I was here and before anybody else Mm -hmm. was here in this way. There's this great mythos that this land was empty before settlers came. And that's very much not true. There were plenty of people here living their lives. I don't know if anyone was living in my backyard. I've not yet ever found proof that there was. But then again, this whole neighborhood has drastically changed, I'm sure, over the past. But here's a note for those who want to cook from the book to try to really experience these recipes for themselves. You might face a predictable problem sourcing ingredients that are actually meant to be locally grown, organic, and free from European influence. Many of these recipes are really deeply appealing to me, but where am I going to find a cup of hand harvested wild rice for real wild rice or even amaranth for the four ingredient amaranth crackers? They look amazing. These recipes, they're so appealing to me, the flavors of sumac and maple. And yet I'm just not sure where I'm going to be able to find some of these things to go into these recipes if I'm trying to be accurate to the recipe. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking maybe the point is not so much to have a collection of recipes that can be easily accomplished by the reader, more that this is a first step in an effort to compile and give definition Mm -hmm. to a previously overlooked food culture. I actually like that this book is unapologetic and uncompromising in its accessibility. We've seen this in other cookbooks before where it may not be really totally accurate, but you're going to be able to pull off something that kind of resembles it, the recipe of origin. In this case, they don't care. If you can't find that thing, substitutions not really offered or suggested. After all, there are very real reasons why some of these ingredients gave way to European-influenced foods. There's Mm. a reason why amaranth gave way to wheat why bison was supplanted by cattle. Maybe this is part of a larger call to return to native plants and heirloom seeds, like the conversation that you had with Chef Sean, Mm -hmm. coming back to our roots and back to a broader appreciation for the world that is as it is. And so finally, I appreciate too that much like how to cook and eat in Chinese gave us definitions and clues for banquet dishes and how to eat them, The sous chef also devotes a chapter to explaining celebrations for the different full moons and the appropriate feast menus. As someone who lives and works at a breakneck speed barreling into the future, I really like being reminded to pause and reflect on all the cycles of life that we experience. Tides, moons, seasons, years. It can go all way too fast when you aren't looking And menus are really valuable in cookbooks to me because they put dishes into context of meals, a feast of banquets. And it's that ceremony of eating things together and Mm -hmm. as people together that helps transcend food from just nourishment into ceremony or celebration. Yeah, I may never fully adopt an indigenous diet, but I actually do feel inspired to reflect on the foods that I'm eating and why I chose to eat them, and what I'm missing. Mm. I hope that someday I will be able to pick some wild rice and know the treasure that I have in my hand. Mm. 
I love that. I love that so much. And I love talking about the experiences, reflecting on the cycles of life, the tides, the moons, the seasons and the years. And one of the things that was in this cookbook that just popped out to me so quickly when I was going through it is the tamarack honey drizzle. Mm -hmm. Because we have tamarack trees right here on the property. We do. Oh, exciting. And so I literally marked in my calendar to start looking for the tamarack buds next spring so that I can make this tamarack honey drizzle. And the honey that I have is actually from here in Montana, not specifically the valley, but it is from eastern Montana. So I'm feeling like it's all coming together. And again, celebrating the seasons and really looking at the times that these types of things are in season and being aware Mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, I'm inspired by the three sisters, this idea, Mm. the squashes, the maize and beans. These are actually all foods that I don't have a lot of in my diet. This is not really our food tradition to eat these things. But I do feel inspired, if not to be accurate to the recipes in Chef Sean's book, and to at least start to tiptoe my way into succotash and other dishes that are so reliant on the three sisters that are meant to bring them to their fullest and finest glory. This is the season for squashes. And there's a note in here in one of the dishes about if you're cooking this in winter, use butternut squash. And if you're cooking this in summer, use zucchini and summer squashes. Don't try to use winter foods in the summertime, which takes us back to Edna Lewis, which Mm -hmm. takes us back to all these ideas of eating seasonally. And that is definitely something I can appreciate, even if I'm not getting to the heart of an actual indigenous recipe. It's a nice reminder to eat well for your body. Eat the foods that make you thrive and survive as we started off with at the top. Exactly, exactly. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the three sisters because in our next episode on the Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, I'm going to be trying a recipe that incorporates the three sisters and a specific bean that has an absolutely Beautiful, beautiful story talking about saving heirloom seeds. Oh, I can't wait. I'm already hungry. Always hungry. Ready ready for a serving. (laughs) Always hungry. (laughs) For more information about today's episode, please check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes away from this book, I know that you're going to enjoy reading this as much as Kim and I did. And rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify. We would be so appreciative. This helps us to build the As We Eat community, which we absolutely love to connect with. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber for great content about our shows, deeper dives into ingredients or dishes, or just interesting niblets from our great As We Eat community. Please subscribe at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project, serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires, by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion. Ba-ba-da-da-bum, ba-ba-da-bum, ba-da-ba-ba-ba-bum.